I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Daryl Cavins, co-founder of Zulily, an e-commerce company focused on selling apparel and other products to women and their children. Zulily offers daily flash sales of boutique and leading brands at discounted prices. Zulily launched in 2009 and went public in late 2013 with a valuation of $4.5 billion. Daryl started Zulily with Mark Vadon, the founder of Blue Nile, a website that sells diamonds online. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me here. If I'm a busy mother and I'm a Zulily member, uh, what is my experience uh, each morning? So what we see with our members is they're getting a, a push notification from us, often from their, an email that we're sending to them, or in many cases now, a push to their mobile phone to tell them there's new events available. How many new products are you making available for sale each morning? So we're launching about 6,000 new styles of product every day. Just for perspective, you know, a typical Costco store, if you were to walk into it, has about 4,000 styles of product. Uh, and so we're launching more than that every single day. One of your investors, uh, Ajay Chopra from Trinity Ventures, I think, he said that coming out each morning with new sales is analogous to the newspaper business. Yeah. Explain that. We're publishing this new site at 6 a.m. Pacific every day, similar to how a newspaper might have a business news um, kind of metro sports section. We're going to have kids, uh, home, women's, and try to have a diversity of price point and diversity of styles so that um, each mom coming in, there's something where she can go, wow, this is incredible every day. And, and I think it's that, it's that freshness that gets them to come back. You have a very efficient cost structure because you don't hold any inventory. And when a purchase is made, the vendors ship product to you, and you consolidate and then ship the items to customers. One result of that is that the customer doesn't get his or her product right away. Why not just have the uh, vendor ship directly to the customer so that the customer can get it faster? Many of these vendors are, are used to shipping to the local boutique store or to a department store. And so they're used to shipping product on pallets. And so when you call them up and say, I need you to ship 5,000 orders today out to individual customers, it's a really challenging exercise for them, whether it's staffing or systems to be able to do that. Um, along with that, what we see is our customers buying multiple items from multiple different vendors. And that last mile of delivery is an incredibly expensive part of the distribution network. Mm-hmm. And so by bringing them into our centers, we're able to consolidate those items together and send the customer one package, um, and which at the end of the day allows us to offer lower prices. And do you pay the vendor for the shipping? We, we handle all the costs. So we send trucks uh, to their offices to pick everything up and, and handle all the costs and the logistics. You know, our, our center in Columbus, Ohio is 700,000 square feet. Just to give you a sense of that, that's 17 acres under a roof. Each of them has over 1,000 people in them. So, you know, it's a very unique logistical challenge. You can almost think of it, 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 you can think of it more like a almost a FedEx or UPS sort hub. So the product doesn't sit in the building for long, but it, there's a lot of activity and an incredible amount of people in motion happening in these facilities. Are there key technologies that you've relied on to uh, make this as seamless as possible? 
almost everything has been 100% custom built. We had worked with a couple third parties in the early days to launch the business and handle the fulfillment. I think we came to realize over time that it was uh, a pretty hard problem. And at one point we had, you know, six to seven days of trucks backlogged in the parking lot that we couldn't get through the building because the volume was coming in faster than we were able to, to process it. And it was it was one of those moments where I realized we had to bring more things in-house and do them ourselves. Mm. Um, and so we ended up very rapidly within about a 10-week period standing up um, our initial Reno facility and hiring a few hundred people and putting in a warehouse management system. Things like receiving. So when you've got 6,000 new styles of product that you're selling on a daily basis, imagine being the guy on the receiving dock and boxes are coming in. You don't know what's what's coming in. You've got to identify it amongst the, all those items. And so things, t- tools like visual receiving where we take the photography and can show them uh, what's expected to come in and have them validate that. You're in a way a technician technology company even before being an e-commerce company which is outward facing and that's what we as consumers see. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think we view ourselves as a retailer that uses a tremendous amount of technology. It's the retail pieces paired with that unique technology infrastructure underneath, um, under the covers. Now, you come from a technology background. I do. Uh, You ran technology at a company called Blue Nile, which is an online retailer for jewelry, started by your co-founder, Mark Vadon. Mark is a billionaire from Blue Nile as well as Zulily, and he worked at Bain Consulting before yeah. Blue Nile. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I was at Blue Nile back in 1999, and the technology side of that was equally unique. I mean, we were selling diamonds and you know, very unique products certified by third-party labs. Can you tell me a little bit about the germ of Blue Nile? Because in a way, your companies uh, mirror each other. Mark started Blue Nile uh, really throughout of personal experience. He was out looking to uh, buy an engagement ring, and uh, he t- tells the story that he walked into uh, a Tiffany store down in uh, in San Francisco. Mark's a super analytical guy, and uh, this the salesperson said, "Well, which one speaks to you?" And um, he kind of threw his hands up and, and left the store and said, wow, there, there's got to be a better way and, and thought there had to be a consumer reports for diamonds where he could go learn what was, uh, what was out there. And eventually found a, uh, a small site uh, up in, that was based up in Seattle um, where he ended up buying a, a diamond from. When he was up in Seattle then traveling for business a couple weeks later, he dropped the gentleman a note to send him uh, to, to see if he could buy him a coffee and learn about his business and walked in and said, you know, I must have been a pretty good customer for you, you know, spending a couple thousand dollars. And uh, the, the gentleman said, well, you know, it's pretty average. And kind of Mark, in his typical way, did the math in his head and said, wow, there's really something here. And, uh, you know, quickly went back to the valley, raised a little bit of money and, you know, bought this guy's business and uh, quickly turned it into, you know, what has now become Blue Nile. And this guy, Doug Williams, he raised $6 million to, to buy Doug Williams's his, his little business? diamond business. business. And he disrupted the diamond business because at the time, oh, you can't sell diamonds online. I remember the day I walked in and told my coworkers I was leaving to go to this business, which at the time was actually called Internet Diamonds. And people thought I was was absolutely crazy. You know, selling diamonds on the internet, that seems seems crazy. There are certain similarities between Blue Nile and Zulily. For instance, neither of you have inventory to, to, to manage. Uh, and you both have also this scarcity component, uh, you know, the rarity of diamonds versus the scarcity produced by time yeah. uh, on the website. 
on the inventory side, when we when in the early days of Blue Nile, we actually took inventory, mm-hmm. um, and it was through the kind of dot com crash when we couldn't raise more money that we um, kind of evolved the model a little bit to more of a consignment model where we were working with vendors and not taking inventory on directly. And that was an amazing lesson learned from a kind of capital optimization standpoint. Um, you know, we often joke that we're, we're children of the depression from mm-hmm. going through a business that had raised a tremendous amount of money to a point where the spigot had been turned off and you couldn't. And, you know, we learned how to optimize that inventory and took that lesson and have now applied it to, to Zulily. What about the differences between the two businesses? The differences between these two businesses are, are fairly substantial. I mean, you look at the audience, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, Blue Nile targeted men, uh, a high price point, uh, very low repeat frequency of purchase. Our customer and our purchaser is almost the inverse of that, of Blue Nile. We are almost entirely a female customer, uh, low price points, high frequency of customers buying. A lot of similarities in the model, but the customer um, is really almost the inverse. We were talking about Zulily is a technology company. What was so technological about Blue Nile? I think it was in the early days of Blue Nile, this idea of having 100,000 diamonds to sort through. You've got to remember each of those diamonds is a single one, a little more like a kind of airline seats or specific or cars where mm-hmm. you've got you know these unique items that you're trying to sell. Um, and so it's a tremendous amount of technology to make that happen and integrate with partners to understand that distributed inventory base. So it's like a saber system for diamonds? or I mean, behind the scenes, yeah, there's a lot of work from a kind of technology to integrate with vendors, provide them a vendor portal where they can log in and look at what do they need to ship today. The, the whole goal, though, was to make it simple and easy for the consumer, right. to take this really complex set of data and make it visual and easy to use. So things like sliders, so if you've got price points, you can narrow that down or across a diamond, cut clarity, color, mm-hmm. be able to go across those dimensions and understand the impact of, well, what if I spent an extra $100? What if I went down a grade on this? What if I went up a grade on this? And the number of queries is substantial that, you know, trying to mimic that experience that you'd get in a retail store. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Daryl Cavins, co-founder of Zulily, an e-commerce company focused on mothers and children. Zulily offers daily sales of apparel, toys, and other products for the home, averaging 50% off retail prices. So going back to the early days of Zulily, talk to me more about those early weeks, months. So... As I quit my job at Microsoft, uh, where I'd gone in between after I left Blue Nile in 08, the idea was let's put it up there and and see how customers respond. Um, And so we went from this idea of let's do it to live in about 10 weeks. We actually didn't have a fulfillment center. We didn't have a fulfillment. We didn't have a website. You know, to see us that first day, we had $1,300 in sales and we had a vision that we'd launch roughly one event a day. Um, by the third day, I had pulled all the other events that we had scheduled for the next week to 10 days and launched them over the next two days and realized we had to get to scale much faster. And our team you know, went through a moment of anxiety saying, well, what are we going to do on the third day? We've just taken all the product we were going to have and now we have nothing. And it's like, let's, let's dig in and figure it out. We worked the phones and we found vendors and we did photo shoots. So yes, we've ended up at a great spot, but the path to get there has been a little windy and a little bumpy. You grew from three to 300 employees in the first 18 months. You had to switch offices yeah. four times. Your sales in the first year were 20 million. And then when you IPO'd uh, three or four years later, they were 700 million. How did people find out about you early on? 
So we, so I'm a big believer in paid marketing. It was starting with folks like Google and going and doing search words for baby apparel and uh, kids' dresses and uh, products like that. It was going to uh, portals like MSN and Yahoo and saying, we like to do an ad buy, but we, we tested into it. So it was, I remember writing those first $5,000 checks and crossing my fingers and hoping we'd get customers. And what we did is we took the, the couple that worked and then we wrote them $10,000 checks. And then we saw what worked, and then we wrote them $20,000 checks. And so very, very deliberate and careful about the money we spent. But when we saw things working, we were quick to double down and go after that. You've kept a very low profile until your IPO, um, despite, you know, you're getting traction from both the vendors and members. Why were you quiet? So I think there are a couple reasons why we stayed so quiet. We, first off, felt like we had a great business, and we didn't want anybody to know about it. You were worried about competitors like like an Amazon or some of the other flash sales companies getting into this vertical. Yeah, I think as we saw what we saw out of the gates was this strength, and um, we felt like that we still needed to learn more about it and adjust. Uh, but you know, when you've got something good and getting to scale, um, you know, we thought that by getting a head start. Um, would give us a long-term advantage, and I think it has. And you ended up raising more than $90 million in, in venture capital. Mark invested a first million, and then uh, Mavron, Howard Schultz, is, he's the founder of Starbucks, his, his venture firm was a key investor very early on. Yeah, that initial fundraising is kind of an interesting story. We went into uh, the Mavron team, and we had a one-page Excel um, sheet, and then we spent about an hour and a half at the whiteboard drawing up what we were going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, we hadn't built anything yet, and we the, the Mavron team jumped in and said, "Yeah, let's do this." Now, there's part of that is perhaps you know by the guy a little yeah. bit. You and Mark had been wildly successful at Blue Nile, so yeah, there's certainly an element of, of we had uh, we had been successful. What, what had been interesting is Mavron had actually turned us down twice at Blue Nile. Dan Leviton. Correct. And uh, he turned us down twice at Blue Nile and said, I'm not going to miss this one. And, you know, took the risk with us when it was an idea and uh, obviously turned out well for him over time. And then fast forward four years, uh, you IPO'd. Your son rang yeah. the bell at the Na- at NASDAQ. It was a pretty surreal experience to go and realize that, you know, four years ago when we started the business, he was uh, two going on three and to be standing there at NASDAQ uh, having him ring the bell. How old was your daughter at the time of the IPO? She was seven. So how yeah. come she didn't ring the bell? So my, my kids, like most kids, are, are fairly different. And uh, my son, who is six, is very outgoing and boisterous. And my daughter, I ended up having, even to get her to go up on stage, um, we had to make a slight detour by the American Girl doll store mm-hmm. on our way home. And your wife uh, was, was with you. Her name is Cor- Siobhan. Correct. And you met her at Blue Nile. I did. Um, I, I met my wife through our, our head of customer service at Blue Nile, actually, was her roommate. I will tell you, though, dating somebody while you're working at a diamond company is a challenging thing because the expectations go up uh, for those, uh, those Christmas holiday <laughs> birthday presents. You're from Canada. You made your way to Seattle uh, after college. You went to the University of Victoria uh, and majoring in engineering? Geography. Okay. Majoring of all, in, of all things. Yeah. Uh, why geography? You know, I was, um, I would say I was never a terribly great student. What I found in kind of studying geography was that the, you had this kind of physical element, but still that, that scientific element that kind of 
excited me together. And I ended up in technology through that by mm. spending a lot of time in kind of GIS, geographical information systems. So it's being able to take a physical space, physical area, and represent it in a computer. Everything from uh, where you're putting national parks to oil and gas planning and you know, very uh, visual things, but brought together in a scientific way. What did your parents do? Uh, my dad was a uh, mechanical engineer working for the utility company up in British Columbia, and uh, my mom was a very early math and computer science major um, and always had a computer around the house in the very early days of computing and just got that exposure very early. Were, you, were they worried about you, given that you weren't the typically so-called good student? Yes. I think, you know, as I look back, even through high school, I remember barely passing grade 11 and, um, you know, having a sit down with them of like, what is going on here? Did you drop, drop out? out of university? So yeah. you didn't graduate from university. No. Uh, were you worried about you? I, I tried hard. Uh, you know, I was not the slacker sitting at the back of the room goofing off in the class. Um, I was really focused, but I, I just was not a great student. Memorization was not my thing. It, it obviously ended up working out okay, but it was, it was a tremendous amount of work. I think one might be surprised to hear that because you are highly analytical. I remember in university and college, I was taking a math class. I can remember back to the day the light bulb went off when it just started to make sense. It was a, actually a class on... Um, statistics, combinations, and permutations. Uh, I don't know why, but it was a moment where I realized, like, okay, I get this now. You're, you're one of the fortunate ones uh, that happen to have that light bulb moment, you know, versus the millions of others who are unconventional yeah. in their learning. Yeah. I, I think that unconventional learning is, um, is important. Yeah. How has it informed, you know, your, your parenting? I think it's, it's being open to how my kids are experiencing school. And I'd say I, I, I have two very different children, you know, one who um, is very confident in himself and one who's a little more timid, probably more like I was as a kid, you know, trying to figure out what are the things that we can do to help uh, help them learn in the way that that is helpful for them. I've gotten to know um, a gentleman that started an organization called Code.org in Seattle that is looking to drive computer science in schools. And uh, uh, my daughter came home one day uh, talking about how uh, how she was learning computer science on paper. Actually, I was like, well, "This is this is incredible. This is," and I think you know, seeing if there's more we can do to help there. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. My guest has been Daryl Cavins, co-founder of Zulily. If you would like to learn more about the show, please visit our website at fromscratchradio.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Jess G. Harris or find us on Facebook. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. Thank you.